Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is the word of God for the people of God. As we are moving forward in our study in the Gospel of Luke, I think for many of us it might be easy to forget just where in the ministry of Jesus Christ, the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, we are at this point. For several chapters now, though we may have forgotten it, Luke has been describing Christ's ministry as he is slowly but surely working his way towards Jerusalem, the holy city. And now this morning, our text begins with Jesus declaring to his disciples that they have begun the ascent up to the city of Jerusalem. Just how close are they to the holy city? Well, Luke says and. Verse 35, they were drawing near to Jericho. Jericho is about 14 miles away from Jerusalem. It's about an 8 to 10 hour walk. So they were easily within a day's walk of the holy city. Beloved, understand this. The context of the events that we are reading about today, the events that we will, Lord willing, read about next week, they are happening all within a few days of the crucifixion. And Jesus knows it. And I think that Jesus Christ being, yes, truly God, but also truly man, I think in his mind he must have this this thought of the crucifixion hanging over him like a black cloud. It had to always be on his mind. Soon he would set foot in the city where he would accomplish his mission of making atonement for His people by becoming the once and for all time perfect sacrifice upon the cross. The cross was, I think, what was consuming the mind of Christ at this point in His earthly life. But as we see from the opening verses of our text today, the cross for the disciples was the furthest thing from their mind. And think about if you were Jesus in this situation. We who have suffered great grief, we who uh, 
experience fear. We know that grief and fear can be many times lonely emotions. And Jesus felt those emotions. And for those who grieve, at times, you know, you, you are in a state of grief and you watch the world go on all around you as if nothing terrible has ever really happened. But in your life, your mind is consumed with grief. This had to be what the Lord felt in these final days leading up to the cross. Here he was, making his journey to Jerusalem with his closest earthly friends. And he alone was focused on what was about to take place. It should be no wonder then that Jesus tells his disciples on this, uh, on this day, and he tells them for the third time, what will take place when they arrive in Jerusalem. Twice before in Luke's Gospel, Jesus has told the disciples, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed and put to death. This is what Jesus says in our passage this morning will happen. He says, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. Now, this is interesting. This is the first time in any of the prophecies of the cross that Jesus mentions the role of the Gentiles in his death. And I think as I was reflecting on this, this is a good, just a brief reminder for us, beloved, that while it may have been the Jews who rejected Christ, who betrayed Christ, who cried for his crucifixion, it was a Roman cross upon which he died. And I think that's important for us to remember because many people throughout the history of the church have tried to blame the death of Christ solely on the Jews. And many times throughout the centuries of the church, anti-Semitism had arisen among the mindsets of God's people. And many times that anti-Semitism was driven by the idea that it was the Jews who betrayed and killed Jesus. Yes, the Jews did do that. But we as Gentiles had a hand in it as well. The cross, beloved, was an innovation of a depraved Gentile mind. Jesus says the Gentiles, our ancestors in a sense, will kill him. Jesus says he will be in the Holy, Spirit, uh, in the Holy City mocked. He will be shamefully treated. He will be spit upon. He tells the disciples he will be flogged. And they will kill him. And that's what's hanging over Christ. But notice what else Christ says. He also says on the third day, he will rise again from the dead. He will rise in glorious triumph. And so understand this about Jesus, beloved. I think he was overwhelmed with what lay before him. But he was not without hope. His death would be horrid, both physically as he suffered what may have been the most cruel and painful death known to man, and he would suffer spiritually as he would take on the full weight of the wrath of God to pay for the sins of his people. But he also knew he would rise again in glorious triumph. And when he would rise, he would crush the head of the ancient serpent, the devil. He would remove death's sting he would set his people free from the guilt and the power of sin. Christ was not without hope in this moment. And yet, in verse 34, we see the disciples 
following their same old patterns. Just like with the two prior prophecies of his death, his disciples don't get it. Notice verse 34. Verse 34 is very interesting. Luke says in three different ways that the disciples were not hearing and believing and understanding Jesus. He says uh, that they were blind, in a sense, to the things that Jesus was saying. He says they didn't understand. He says the truth of what Jesus was saying was hidden from them. And he says that they did not grasp what was said. The disciples heard Jesus say, I am going to be betrayed and put to death. And they would not, and they could not believe it. Now we might ask, why? Why were the disciples not hearing what Jesus was saying? Because we know when they get to Jerusalem and these events actually happen, the disciples act like it's, what? where's this coming from? We didn't expect this at all. Why were they not getting what Jesus was saying? Why were they not hearing it? Why were they, and I think this is the right way to say it, refusing to believe Jesus on this point? Well, part of the reason why, beloved, is because they were products of their culture. A first century Jewish culture that, despite what the prophets of the Old Testament said about the Messiah, they could not grasp or wrap their minds around the idea that when the Messiah would come, he would suffer and die. The idea of a suffering Messiah, and certainly the idea of a dead Messiah, simply did not fit in with their understanding of a conquering king who would come and set his people free from their oppressors. They had the wrong, even the disciples, still at this point, after being with Jesus for well over two years, they still had a wrong expectation of Christ's work. Now, I think this raises an interesting point for us, beloved. Just a brief point of application. It raises a question. The question is, what truths concerning Jesus might we be blind to? We usually speak of spiritual blindness in terms of unbelief. And that is appropriate for the unbeliever for the one who rejects Jesus, they are spiritually blind. They reject Jesus because they can't see who he is. They refuse to repent of their sins and receive Jesus by faith because their sin has blinded them. And they need a work of grace in their lives. They need the Holy Spirit. Just as we needed the Holy Spirit to come to Christ. They need the Holy Spirit to come and raise them to new life. To remove the scale from their eyes so that they can see Jesus and respond by faith. But beloved, spiritual blindness is not merely a problem for the unbeliever. As God's people, we too can be blind to truths about Jesus Christ. Maybe not in a way that condemns us like an unbeliever, but certainly in ways which hinder our fellowship and our communion with Jesus and I think this is what the disciples are showing us today. Here were Christ's closest companions. Men who certainly knew that in order to be saved, in order to enter into the kingdom of God, they must repent of their sins, receive Jesus by faith, and follow him. And we know that these men, at least the ones who wouldn't sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, we know that these men have done that. In fact, remember last week, our text ended with Peter saying to Jesus, 
Lord, we've left our families. We left our homes. We left our loved ones. And Jesus says to Peter and all of his disciples that because they have done that, because they left all to follow him, they have gained in this age so much more. And he says in the age to come, they have gained and received everlasting life. And so we might say in modern terms, these men are Christians. They're saved. They're followers of Christ. And yet, they were still on some level blind to certain truths concerning the Lord. And this should cause us to ask, brothers and sisters, what truths we ourselves might be blind to concerning Jesus. What truths might we be blind to about the person of Jesus Christ or the work of Jesus Christ? Or even more than that, what truths might we be blind to concerning ourselves and our own sin? Are we, and I think the answer to this is yes, but are we, like the disciples, blinded to certain truths because our beliefs are being shaped by the world around us instead of being shaped by the Word of God? I want us to be careful here. What I am calling us to this morning is self-reflection, brothers and sisters. I am calling us to respect, uh, reflect rather, on areas where we might be spiritually blind. It is too easy for us to look at others and see their blind spots, right? How could they be so blind? How could they be shaped by the culture and believe these false things about Jesus Christ? But beloved, are we looking and examining ourselves? Are we asking the Holy Spirit to reveal our blind spots to us? To show us from the Word of God where we might be wrong and have our thoughts concerning Christ corrected by the Word? Our brother Pete, you've been around. He hasn't been here lately. He's having some uh, issues with his ears, and we can be praying for him for that. Uh, But our brother Pete will often say in the prayer request time that he wants God to show him new insights into His Word. Are we praying that? We realize we don't have everything right about Jesus, right? We need the Spirit to reveal to us our blind spots. We can all be blinded. We can all misunderstand. We can all misrepresent. And we can flat out miss out on certain truths concerning who Jesus is. And we can certainly be blinded by our own sin. The question is, how can we overcome How can we strive to overcome our spiritual blind spots? Beloved, we do it by doing exactly the opposite of what the disciples did in our opening verses today. We do it, we overcome spiritual blindness by listening to the Word and believing the Word. The disciples heard the Word incarnate, the Word in the flesh, Jesus. They heard Him flat out tell them, the truth about his mission and his work and what would happen to him when they get to Jerusalem and he doesn't and they don't believe it. It's like they're saying, ah, Lord, you're crazy. We know you're God's eternal son. We know that you're God in the flesh, but you're crazy. They didn't believe the word of God. Now, one day they would. One day the Lord would remove their blind spots and he would do it again through the ministry of the Word. I cannot wait to get to Luke chapter 24 and preach on the road, uh, on, 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 about the road to Emmaus. There in Luke chapter 24, Jesus rises from the dead and He walks amongst His disciples, though they didn't know it was Him. 
And he leads them in what was probably, in fact it was, the greatest Bible study of all time. Luke says Jesus began with the writings of Moses and worked his way through the entire Old Testament and declared to them everything that the Scripture said about himself. And later on, as the disciples were together, Luke tells us, this is the language Luke uses, their eyes were open and their hearts burned within them. The Word of God, brothers and sisters, removed this particular blind spot from the disciples' spiritual eyes. The Word of God, if we are diligent to study it, the Word of God, if we are faithful to receive it and hear it, the Word of God, if we prayerfully pour over it, the Word of God will do the same for us. God, the Holy Spirit, will work through His Word so that we can see and know Jesus all the more. For the time being, the disciples remained blinded to some great truths about Jesus because they refused to receive the Word of God in this. And that led them to not fully understanding the work of Jesus and His personhood. And really, again, we say that the disciples here are spiritually blind to these truths about Christ. And this leads us into the main portion of our text today, verses 35 through 43. Uh, I think the tie-in between these two accounts in our text today is to draw a contrast between the disciples and this blind man that meets Jesus as he entered into Jericho. There's a contrast in these two accounts that Luke is drawing our attention to. Luke gives us a picture of a man who lacked physical sight. But in this blind man, Luke gives us a picture, unlike the disciples, who in this moment displays remarkable spiritual sight. That's what the connection is between the first couple verses and this, this account of, of Luke healing this blind man. It's a contrast. And in a sense, some people have said, some commentators have said, this blind man puts the disciples to shame. And we should understand that these verses are about a physical healing, which Jesus accomplishes. He, Luke tells us he enters Jericho, or he draws near to Jericho at least, and a blind man calls, him, uh, calls out to him despite the crowds trying to silence him. And Jesus calls the man to him, and Jesus immediately heals him. And we need to not forget the purpose of Christ's miracles, beloved. The, the reason why Christ was doing all of these miracles and healing so many people in his earthly life was because those miracles were the proof positive that Jesus was and is God Himself in the flesh. The miracles were verifying Christ's personhood. They were verifying His power and His authority. And they were also evidence that the Messiah had indeed come and He was establishing the kingdom of God on earth. We can't forget that, beloved. As with all of the physical healings and all the miracles that Jesus Christ did in His earthly life, this is what the miracles were intended to show us. His personhood, His power, His authority, and His inauguration of the kingdom of God. And so we keep that in mind. We want to be careful as we move forward in this account of Jesus uh, healing the blind man. You know, we don't want to over-spiritualize the miracles of Jesus Christ. We don't want to make allegory where it's not appropriate to do so. Uh, but, beloved, I think in this miracle, 
I think in this miracle, Luke is using specific language to get us to think beyond the physical healing. I think that Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is being very intentional with the language he uses here in verses 35 through 43. I believe he is using language which points us, as I said, beyond the physical miracle to an even greater spiritual miracle that is happening here in the life of this blind man. This account is not just about a physical healing in Christ's earthly ministry. It is about that, and it carries all those meanings with it that we just talked about. But there's also a great healing of the soul that is happening in this text. There's something spiritual happening here. And I believe that in this man who was physically blind, we have a picture of one who displayed, again, in contrast to the disciples, great spiritual insight. And because of that, he received not only the healing of his earthly eyes, but also he received in this moment eternal salvation. We have in this man a person who can see things about himself and about Jesus. He can see himself for who he really is. He can see what his true condition is. And he is a man who can see Jesus for who he really is. Luke tells us that as Jesus entered Jericho, the blind man became aware because of the noise of the crowds. Remember, uh, Jericho was a city where the priests would go and prepare uh, to, to, to put in their time, if you will, to go up to the temple in Jerusalem and serve. Every priest had to take his turn at doing that. So Jericho would have been filled, especially leading up to the Passover, with the Levitical priests getting ready to go to Jerusalem and serve. And not only that, there were normal crowds in Jericho. And everybody, because of what was heard about Jesus, everybody at this point in Christ's life wanted to get, wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to get a glimpse of him. And so this crowd is making a ruckus, and this blind man asks, what is going on? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And right away in verse 38, we see this man's spiritual insight. Look at what this man says to Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. There are two parts to that statement. Two things to notice in what this blind man says to Jesus. First, Jesus, son of David. Why does the blind man call Jesus that? It is because he knew that Jesus was the Messiah. This term, son of David, it's not a statement about Jesus' family tree. It's a statement about him being the promised offspring of David, the king who would come and sit on his throne and reign over Israel forever. The blind man saw, through all that he heard about Jesus up until that point, that Jesus was the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to David. He probably heard that the lame were made to leap for joy. He probably heard that the blind received their sight. He had heard that the dead were raised to new life. Therefore, he knew, he saw clearly that Jesus is the Christ. He knew it. And he cried out. And the crowds tried to stop him and silence him. But he would not be hindered from coming to Jesus. He would not let the crowd stop him. Instead, he cried out all the louder, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
That's the first thing to notice about what this blind man says. Secondly, notice this. He not only knew who Jesus was, he knew who he was. He was not blind to the truth about Christ. He was not blind to the truth of his own condition. He knew he was a man who needed mercy. Now the word mercy here simply means compassion or pity. And we can say he probably cried out for mercy because he longed for Jesus to have compassion on him and heal him of his blindness. Again, I don't want to over-spiritualize the passage. And yet, again, Luke is intentional with his language. And what Luke is doing here, I think, is leading us as readers beyond just the physical aspect of what this blind man was longing for. I believe it's right to say that although this man knew that he had a great physical need, ultimately he knew that his need went far deeper than the fact that he could not see with his earthly eyes. He knew, and he believed, beloved, that he was truly in need of the mercy of God. A mercy that would do more than just restore his physical sight. A mercy, beloved, that would restore his soul. And he knew that the mercy of God was indeed found in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Beloved, this is the cry of all who come to Jesus by faith. And Jesus, as he does with all who come to him, with the cry of mercy on their lips, Jesus received this man. And he did have mercy on him. Look at verses 40 and 41. Jesus commands for the man to be brought to him. And in his mercy and compassion, he says, what do you want me to do for you? It's interesting that Jesus would ask him this. Why would Jesus ask this blind man this question? Clearly, Jesus knew this man wanted his sight restored. Jesus knew of this man's immediate physical need. Why did he ask, what do you want me to do for you? I think there are two reasons for that question. At least two, two that I can think of. First, I think that Jesus is, in a sense, showing us the very nature of prayer. The Bible tells us our Father in Heaven knows what we need before we ask. Jesus knew what this man needed before he asked. And yet, the Bible also tells us to come and ask. Why is that? Well, it's because prayer is a means of grace, beloved. Through it, God works in our hearts and He molds our desires to His desires. He feeds and nourishes our souls. He has fellowship with us. Through prayer, God has communion with us. Think about that. Our Heavenly Father desires fellowship and communion with His people in prayer. And I think in our text today, Jesus is showing that beautiful reality to us. Jesus wanted the man to ask him. He wanted that fellowship and communion with this man. There's another reason I believe Jesus asked this man, what do you want from me? Jesus asked him so that this man could respond to Jesus in the exact manner in which he responded. Look at what he says. Lord, let me recover my sight. The emphasis there, beloved, I want to put on the word Lord. 
not on the request itself. Because when he calls Jesus Lord, what is he doing? He is making a confession of faith. He is making a confession that Jesus wanted to hear from him. Pastor Philip Reichen says that whether this man fully realized it or not, by calling Jesus Lord, the blind man was expressing a right relationship with God. There is no way to separate salvation in Christ from the Lordship of Christ. When the blind man called Jesus Lord, he was submitting himself to worship and to obey the Savior. This man was making a profession of who he believed Jesus was. He was making a profession that Jesus was not just the Savior, not just the Lord, but he was trusting in him as his Lord, as his Savior. This man, beloved, do you see how he had profound spiritual sight? He was able to see with eyes of faith who Jesus was as the Messiah, the Savior of God's people. And he was able to see his own need for the mercy of God. He was able to see that salvation would be found through coming to Christ. He was able to see that he must, if he was to have Jesus as his Savior, he must have Jesus as his Lord and commit himself to a life of worship and obedience to Christ. He can see all of this despite not being able to see his own hand in front of his face. And in response, out of compassion, out of mercy, Jesus does immediately restore the man's sight to him. And he says to him, your faith has made you well. We've heard Jesus make this statement many times in the Gospel of Luke. I hope that if you have been worshiping with us throughout this series on Luke's Gospel, I hope that by now you know how significant this proclamation is. Your faith has made you well. It's not merely a statement about physical healing. The phrase has made you well, it literally translates into the word saved. Your faith, Jesus declares to this man, your faith has saved you. Really, the object of his faith, Jesus Christ, has saved him. If we doubt, beloved, that there's something going on here in this blind man's life that goes well beyond the physical healing, then we need to consider what Jesus says to the man. Your faith has saved you. This man, beloved, when he received his physical sight, he also received his eternal salvation. Because he came to Jesus by faith alone. And what a privilege this blind man had. Think about this. This blind man, when his physical eyes, maybe for the first time in his life, although it's interesting, Luke says, his sight was restored to him. When his physical sight was restored to him, when his physical eyes were opened for the first time, having heard Christ declare to him that his faith had saved him, what is the first thing that he beheld? The first thing he saw was the face of his Savior, Jesus Christ. Can you imagine, beloved, living your entire life in darkness, blindness, having your sight then restored to you, and the first thing you see is the very image of the invisible God who just declared that your faith has saved you? The first thing you see is the Lamb of God who took away your sin? 
The first thing you see is the one who loved you so much that he gave up heavenly riches to come and go into the holy city and be betrayed and spit upon and beat and put to death for you. This is what the blind man experienced in that moment. This man got a taste of eternal glory right there in the streets of Jericho. Is it any wonder then that this man's immediate response was to follow Jesus and glorify God? He was a man who, despite living a life in total blindness, had tremendous spiritual sight. He saw clearly by faith. And when his eyesight was restored to him, he saw clearly his Lord and Savior. He beheld the face of God himself in the flesh. The first sight he saw was the face of God incarnate. And he glorified God. As I read that and I think about it, and maybe you feel the same way, I get a little envious of that man. Do you get a little jealous thinking about that? To think that the first thing he would ever see in his life is the face of Christ? I get jealous when I try to remind myself of a great truth, beloved. What happened to this man is what happens to everyone when they come to faith in Christ. If you come to Christ and you have received Him by faith, this is what you too have experienced. The great hymn says, You once were lost, now I'm found. You were blind, but now you see. And so in your salvation, Jesus removed the scales from your eyes, your spiritual eyes. And in a very real but spiritual sense, the first thing you saw was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the first thing you could clearly see with the eyes of faith. Now you may have forgotten that truth. I forget that truth. But it's the truth nonetheless. Some of us have been Christians for so long that we forget what it was like to have our eyes open to the truth of Jesus Christ. But all of us, if we belong to Jesus, we have experienced this at some point in our life. Whether you grew up knowing Jesus your entire life or whether you came to Christ late in life, at some point, the Holy Spirit removed the blinders from your eyes. You could see the truth of Jesus Christ. And for the first time spiritually, you saw clearly your Lord and Savior. Now it's a little different, I know. Because we look at this blind man and we say, he actually saw Jesus. He not only saw him with spiritual eyes, but he saw him with physical eyes. How can we not envy that? Well, beloved, I would still say, don't envy this man because one day... One day, we too will see Jesus with even better sight than that blind man saw him on that day in Jericho. The reality is, for all of God's people, we will have a far better vision of Jesus than anyone has yet to have. The day is coming, beloved, when we will behold Jesus with our eyes perfectly in the new creation. We will behold Jesus with new resurrection eyes and we will see Him without the veil of sin 
Every scale will be removed from our eyes and we will truly, fully, completely see the crown joy of heaven itself, the risen, glorified Jesus Christ. And we will not be able to take our eyes off of Him. So again, we shouldn't envy this blind man. Because when Christ returns and gives us our resurrection bodies, and the veil of sin is gone forever, that blind man is going to be right beside us on that great and glorious day. The hope that every Christian has, beloved, is that as we work our way through this life and we struggle so hard to fight against spiritual blindness, to to ask the Lord to show us new insights into His Word, to ask the Lord to reveal our sin to us and lead us to true repentance as we struggle and battle in this life to see Jesus clearly through this veil. The hope is that someday the veil will be removed. We will behold Him as He is. And the Bible says we will behold Him as He is and we will become like Him. We will get a full glimpse of Jesus Christ, beloved, not just spiritually, but with real, physical, resurrection eyes. One day, the Word incarnate, Jesus Christ Himself, will completely, totally remove our blindness. We will see Him for who He truly is. The best look at Jesus Christ, the best vision of Jesus Christ, beloved, is really yet to come. But the day will come. In the meantime, before we get to that day, Let us, as God's people, diligently pursue a clear sight of Him now with eyes of faith. May the Lord, through the working of the Holy Spirit, apply His Word to us, reveal our blindness so that we can see Jesus more clearly and love Him and grow in our knowledge and faith of Him and grow, I believe, beloved, as Jesus becomes more clear to us and as He becomes more precious to us because we see Him more fully, Lord willing, we will grow in our desire to make Christ known to everyone around us. May the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, do this work in our hearts.